Well, we're going to talk about evangelism, but here's the angle I want to take this morning. Really, we're going to have a conversation, a discussion about what does it mean to be a best friend? What does it mean to be a good friend? If you're part of my generation or even younger, how about this? What does it mean to be a BFF, right? A best friend forever. Now think back. How about you little kids who are still here? Do any of you have a best friend? Any of you kids have a best friend? Can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I've got a buddy, I've got a friend that is my favorite, my number one, the friend. I was reminiscing a little bit about what it's like to have a best friend. That's not really a term we use a lot when we become adults. But oftentimes, as you think about the different seasons and chapters of life that we go through as we mature and develop, we have different definitions or markers of how you define a best friend. I mean, think about when you were a kid, all right? At least where I grew up in my elementary school, one of the ways that you showed the world that this guy was your best friend is before class, all right, in the hallway, you would take off one of your shoes and you would trade with the other guy. Did anybody ever do this, all right? We would swap shoes. That must be a Tennessee thing, all right? All right? Yeah, we, we didn't all wear shoes, but if you did, you switched them out. But otherwise, you do, you do this at the lunch table. Maybe you would swap desserts, right? My granola bar for your snack pack, that's a sign of a best friend. Maybe it was the person you spent the night with most often and had sleepovers, right? But we define best friends in a different way when you get into high school, you get into college, right? Maybe you define best friends this way. This is the person that always likes whatever I post on Instagram, right? That's a good (laughs) indicator. A lot of times we define best friends by the organizations you participate in. This is my teammate. This is my fraternity brother or sorority sister. For college-age guys, you know how you can find out who your best friend is? It's the guy who's just willing to take a last-minute, spur-of-the-moment road trip with you, all right? That's a good indicator. For the ladies, it's, it's the girl who will can- cancel all her plans and sit with you, right, the moment you've had a really tough breakup. That's a good indicator of a best friend. But then when you move on into adulthood, right, oftentimes your best friends are the people who are going through the same phase of life. Maybe you're single together, you're newly married together, you have young children together. Oftentimes, our best friend, it's our spouse. It's the person that we've married. Or maybe later on in life, it's the person that has gone through suffering and hardship and real tragedy with you and your family. There's different ways to define who or what a best friend is. This morning, we're going to look at a story of four men who are good friends, Four men who are best friends with a man who's in need. And we're going to learn the biblical definition of what it means to be a best friend. And here's what we see. A biblical best friend is someone who is willing to do whatever it takes to bring you near Jesus. A biblical best friend is someone who is willing to do whatever it takes to bring you near Jesus. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is in Mark 2. You can go ahead and flip to it just to give you a little context. This is where we're at in Jesus' life and ministry. You notice it's in Mark 2. So this is the beginning. All right, Jesus has just gone public. And if you look just one chapter previous, you'll see that Jesus has just called the 12 disciples to follow him. He's just started performing miracles. So far, he's healed many people, including a leper and a man with an unclean spirit. And Jesus has just preached his first sermon. So Christ, his stock is rising. His popularity is increasing, and he decides, I'm going to go home. And this is where the story picks up. Read with me in verse 1. 
It says, and we, when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And then when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So here's the story. All right, we've got a bunch of people showing up unannounced at a house. Does anybody get stressed when people show up at their house unannounced? Right? It might be... It might be friends, it might be neighbors, it might be family members. All right, if you're anything like my wife and I, usually when you hear that knock on the door, you get a little anxious, right? And then no matter what, this is usually how we respond. We welcome them in, but then we always say this. This must be a southern thing. I'm sorry the house is a mess, right? Even if the house is perfect, right, we feel like we got to confess that to whoever knocks on our door. But here's what we see in this situation, all right, that over 50 people have shown up to a home unannounced. This more than likely is the home of Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. This is Peter's mother's house. And over 50 people have shown up, and they have packed this house out. And a majority of the crowd are scribes. Now, scribes were religious experts. These guys knew the Bible backwards and forwards. So it's a packed house, and it's full of very religious leaders. Now, here's what you got to understand about the architecture, the homes in the ancient Near East. They all basically had the same floor plan, all right? There, there was no variety, all right? They were just an open room, all right? It was like a loft-style apartment. So your kitchen, your bedroom, your dining room, your man cave, all right? It was all combined, all right, in one area. But on the exterior on every one of these houses, there was a staircase, and you could actually ascend these steps and walk and hang out and spend time on the roof of your home. Oftentimes, families would spend time in the evenings in the cool of the day. And so in this story, we're introduced to three separate, three specific characters. We meet the friends, we meet the paralytic, and we meet Jesus. And we can learn something from each and every character. So let's start with the friends. See, these friends are good friends. They are best friends to this paralytic. Now, keep in mind, this paralytic is a man who's paralyzed. That means he can't move. And more than likely, all right, he has had this condition since birth. Now, it's hard for me to really empathize and understand and, and, and really identify with this man, but this is the best I could do. Think for just a moment your favorite way to move, all right? Your favorite movement, in a sense. 
You might be a walker. You might walk the green belt each and every morning. You might be a gardener. You spend time in the front yard, in the backyard, pruning, picking up weeds. Right? You might be a reader. Your favorite movement is just flipping the pages of a book. You might be an athlete, swinging a tennis racket, all right, shooting a basketball. You might be a dancer. You just might be a hugger. All right? That might be your favorite way to move and interact. Now think just for a moment to never be able to experience the satisfaction and the pleasure of any of those movements. Think of about being completely immobile, restricted for your entire life. And then think, on top of that, there's no cure. And so medically, this man was hopeless. He didn't have a cure, but he did have hope because he had good friends. Do you see this? Medically, there was no cure, but this man had hope because he had good friends. And these are friends that had heard the stories about Jesus. They'd heard the rumors about Jesus. They'd heard bits and pieces of the miracles that Jesus had performed. I mean, you can almost picture these guys sitting around a table, all right, like young guys do, arguing, all right, yelling at each other. But I bet the conversation went something like this. They said, look, this Jesus guy, I've heard he can heal people. I heard he preaches with authority. And look, our friend needs to be healed. And you could almost pick, picture one of the friends, maybe the alpha dog in the group, almost banging his fist on the table and saying, look, this is it. This is our chance. This is our opportunity. We got to get our boy near Jesus. We got to do whatever it takes to get our friend near Jesus. Now, I bet most of you identify with the whatever it takes mentality. Maybe at some point in your life, you have resolved, you have committed to have a whatever it takes mentality. Maybe you're in business or sales. And your company or your CEO gave you a sales goal and you said, I'm going to do whatever it takes, right, to accomplish this goal or get this promotion. Maybe you're an athlete, all right, and there came a moment where you said, look, whatever it takes, I'm going to win this game. I'm going to earn this starting spot. Maybe as you think back to when you were a student or your academic career, you had a tough professor or a tough class and you said, whatever it takes, I, I will pull a weeks-long consecutive all-nighter, I'm going to pass this class. I know this one's true because we got a lot of men, I'd say it this way, who have outkicked their coverage, all right, with their wives, all right? They've done really well for themselves. But most of you men, there probably came a point where, where a beautiful young woman caught your eye, right? And you said, I will do whatever it takes to go out with her, all right, to win her love in a sense, what do you see? Evangelism, faithful evangelism begins with the exact same mindset and the exact same heart. Faithful evangelism begins here. I am willing to do whatever it takes to bring my friend near Jesus. I'm committed. I'm going to see this through. And so what do these men do next? They develop a plan, right? They go grab a stretcher, they grab a cot, and they carry their friend all the way across town. They finally track down this home that Jesus is preaching and teaching in, and they knock on the door, right? And the door just cracks open, and the first thing that they see is a room full of backs. And they hear Jesus teaching just over their shoulders. And maybe the first friend tries to push through. He tries to slide in between two bodies, and pretty soon they realize it is packed out. All right, it's like a sold-out concert. I'm not getting close to the stage, 
All right, there's no way into this home. So they're probably disappointed, maybe a little dejected. They pull back from the house, and they go down, and they sit, and they lean against the wall. Right, and they've got to make a halftime adjustment. They've got to regroup. And one of the friends probably looks over to the side of the home, and he says, guys, I think i got an idea. All right, this might sound crazy, but what if we walk up those steps, and we break through that roof? We demolish that ceiling. See, here's how these roofs were built. Oftentimes, they would have thick wooden beams, and then across those beams, they would have smaller sticks. And these sticks would be filled in with something called thatch. Thatch was a combination of hard clay and mud and twigs. It would harden, and that's how they would form their roofs or ceilings. And then on top of that, they would have a layer of tiles, all right? So don't think drywall, don't think shingles, but these men walk. All right, up the stairs, they get on the roof, and they start taking this ceiling apart. They start swinging the hammer. They start pulling up tiles. They start breaking through the thatch until eventually they have a six-foot opening. And here's the point. This job was messy. They had to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. It was dangerous, and it was work. And do you understand that oftentimes this is how evangelism feels? It's a dirty job. you got to roll your sleeves up if you want to be a faithful evangelist. Here's what else we learn, is that real love, genuine friendship, it leads to risk. No doubt, these men were fearful. They were probably a little hesitant, but their love for their friend, it trumped their fear. See, real love, it doesn't play it safe. It's willing to sacrifice. And these men gave up two things. First, they made a physical sacrifice. They gave up their time. They gave up their energy, and they even gave up up their comfort, right? They probably had had a nice, easy day planned. But second, they they made a social sacrifice. Because remember, who is in this home? It's nothing but scribes. These are religious leaders. These are political VIPs. These are very important people. And these men's first impression with the scribes is that they are breaking through the ceiling. All right, what do you think these scribes were thinking the moment they laid eyes on these four men? They're probably thinking one of two things. Either these guys are crazy or they're criminals. All right, the point is this. If you're going to be a faithful evangelist, a good friend, your reputation might take a hit. Someone will probably consider that you're crazy at some point in your life. So here's my question for you. What have you risked to bring your friends near Jesus? What sacrifices have you made? Are you willing to give up your time, your energy, your effort, your sleep, and your reputation? Are you committed to removing roofs? Are you committed to breaking barriers? Because, see, when we get honest, very often we don't see a track record of risk. We see a track record of risk avoidance. And oftentimes we avoid risk one of two ways. These are things we say. These are things we think in order to avoid risk when it comes to evangelism. The first is this. Sometimes we tell ourselves, I just don't know enough. Anybody ever thought that before? I want to share with this guy. I want to present the gospel. I want to bring him here near, near Jesus. But what if he asks me this question? Or what if he says this? I don't know enough Bible. I don't know enough apologetics to ever impact this guy. Well, guess what? Neither did these four men. See, these guys didn't have a blueprint. They didn't go to trade school. 
They didn't have any roof demolition training, right? They just figured it out. In fact, we see an even better example of this just a couple chapters later in Mark 5. In Mark 5, we're actually introduced to the first man that Jesus commissions to be a missionary. And guess what our first impression of this man is? In Mark 5, we meet a man who is naked. He is demonically oppressed. He's screaming out, cutting himself, and he is living alone in a graveyard. But guess what? This man encounters Jesus. And he bows his knee before Jesus. And Jesus forgives him and heals him. And later on in verse 19, we find that this man is clothed and he is in his right right mind. And Jesus sends him out. He commissions him. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says to this man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. In a sense, Jesus says, I want you to go home and share your testimony. Believe it or not, this man is the first missionary to the Gentiles. This man is the first missionary to leave the nation of Israel and become a foreign missionary. And here's what's really interesting. Was he a church officer? Was he a Sunday school teacher? Had he gone to seminary? Had he even gone to beach project? No, he hadn't done any of these things. See, oftentimes, we, we innocent, mentally, we have higher requirements to share our faith than even Jesus did. We tend to disqualify ourselves. But look where Jesus sets the bar, according to Mark 5. Here are Jesus' requirements if you want to share your faith. First off, can you put your pants on? All right? Can you clothe yourself? Second off, do you have a right mind? Are you sane? If you can say yes to both those questions, guess what Jesus would say to you? I can use you. I can work with that. Will you go home? Will you go to your friends? Will you go to your family? Will you communicate what I have done in your life? See, here's the point. Jesus has saved you with someone else in mind. God has saved you with someone else in mind. So oftentimes we say, I don't know enough, or this is what we think to ourselves, this guy, this person, this coworker, this cousin could never come to Jesus. You guys ever thought that? Maybe he's too lost. He's too addicted. He's too sinful. He's too broken. You just don't know what he does on the weekend. But look, did these four friends ever say, there's no way this guy can't walk? Did they ever say this man is helpless? Look, if the paralytic was not too paralyzed for Jesus to heal him, then is anyone too sinful for Jesus to forgive them? The answer is no. See, when we write people off, you know what we're doing? Functionally, in our heart, we are limiting the power of God. In a sense, we are rejecting the fact that God is omnipotent or all-powerful. You want to know what we're really doing? We're playing God. We're saying, in a sense, God, I know you can say this type, but you can't save this type. And look, this is just my observation from being in ministry, being on campus. But in my estimation, the the, the people who are most spiritually interested are the people we tend to write off. And here's how I know this, because later in Mark 2, this exact same chapter, Jesus says this, the well, or those who are healthy, have no need of a physician. But very often, the people we write off as too addicted or too sinful, they know they're broken. 
They know they're sick, and they desire a physician. I, I want to give you guys a couple stories throughout this sermon just to illustrate, all right, these principles, not to pat myself on the back, but just to show you, all right, this is true and this really works. The first man that I led to Christ on the football team here at West Georgia was eight years ago. His name was Brandon, all right? And this guy, all right, if you were to list the entire roster and identify one guy who is least likely to come to Christ, it would be Brandon. And I've always made it a habit that whatever guy that is who is most lost, most broken, doing the most drugs, that's the guy I pray for the most. And so Brandon was literally a barroom brawler. I mean, he would go to the square just looking to throw haymakers and punches. This guy was rowdy. He was disrespectful. He was arrogant, all right? And he was a borderline alcoholic, all right? This guy was jacked up. But for whatever reason, I built a relationship with Brandon, all right? We'd started developing trust, and I invited him to join me in a Bible study. And believe it or not, he started coming to this Bible study. And a couple weeks later, he came to a place where he placed his trust in Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, it was an amazing conversion. Like that, he was one person one day, and the very next day he was a new man. To the point where he was treating his teammates differently. All right, he was doing a whole different things on the weekend. He was receiving coaching differently. I mean, it was a night and day transformation. And here's what's amazing. All right? One of his coaches actually noticed this change. And so he went up to Brandon and said, Brandon, what has happened to you? Or you are a different person. And Brandon looked at him and he said, Coach, you might not believe this, all right? But I have given my life to Christ. I've decided to follow Jesus, all right? And this is pretty funny. But this defensive line coach looked at Brandon and his first, first response was not, I'm so proud of you. I'm excited for you. He said, who is talking to you about Jesus, all right? And he said, well, this guy named Ben. And this coach said, I got to meet this guy. And so we, I, I got to meet with this coach, all right? And right thereafter, all right, this coach actually invited me to not just lead a Bible study for a few football players, but to function, to operate as a chaplain for the team and lead pregame devotionals and Bible studies for coaches and players and actually travel with the team. That was eight years ago. All right, but because I was faithful to share the gospel with a man that most people would write off, he not only came to Christ, he not only shared his faith, but it gave me greater all right, opportunities among the football team. All right, so that's why we need to risk. Even with people, we don't need to write people off. So how do we do this? How do we bring people near Jesus, all right? It was easy for these four men, right, because Jesus was in bodily form, all right? Jesus was in a home. We know where Jesus is. Let's get to Jesus. How do we do it today? Well, there's three ways. There's three ways that we can bring our friends near Jesus. The first is this. We've got to live like Jesus Christ. We've got to live like Jesus. In the New Testament, we're, also, we're actually called to be imitators of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, people should observe our lives. They should listen to our words and have a better understanding of how Jesus would talk. They should see the way that we go about our job, our nine to five, have a better picture of how Jesus would work. They should see the way that we lead our families and relate to our wives and have a better picture in, in a grasp of how Jesus would relate to his family. We'll talk about this in just a minute, but we're called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we also have to live like Christ. Our lifestyle has to validate the message. So first off, we've got to live like Christ. All right, second, 
We've got to invite our friends into the body of Christ. We've got to live like Jesus, but we've got to invite our friends into the body of Christ. And this is more than just inviting your coworkers, inviting your friends to show up to church on Sunday. What I'm talking about here is actually building relationships, developing trust, developing friendships. Because have you ever thought about this? For most people who don't know Jesus, the number one roof, the number one barrier that they have to work through is that they recognize, all right, if I decide to follow Jesus, it's going to significantly affect my friendships, my relationships, and my social life. Do you get that? I mean, so often I share the gospel with guys on campus, and they recognize, hey, look, if I'm going to follow Jesus, my life's got to change, and my buddy's got to change, right? It's going to change the way I relate with my teammates or my drinking buddies or my family or my friends. And so how do you remove this barrier? Well, there's two ways to do it. There's one way you could do is just go hardcore and say, look, you don't need friends, all right? You have Jesus. And while, look, that might be true, I have a more effective way, all right? It's just invite these people, invite these men, these women, these coworkers into the body of Christ. Hang out with them. Eat with them. Play with them. All right, just have a lot of fun with these people. These past two weeks, I've actually had the privilege to officiate two weddings, all right, for, for, for a bride and a groom who are serious followers of Jesus. And can I tell you this? All right, one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that we have are Christian weddings because there's nothing like it. Because not only do I get to stand on stage and explain all right, that the mystery of marriage is actually about Jesus and his love for the church. But then they get to go eat great food and listen to great music and to dance and to have fun with the body of Christ. All right, it is a powerful way to win people to Jesus. See, here's what I've seen. This is just my observation once again, is that very often people commit to the body of Christ before the person of Christ. Does that make sense? They commit to the body of Jesus. They build friendships, relationships, trust with men and women who follow Jesus, and then they submit their lives to the person of Jesus. In fact, I was just meeting with a couple baseball players on Wednesday. We were eating lunch. Both of these baseball guys in the past four weeks made professions of faith. They decided to follow Jesus. And I was helping them work through their testimony so that they can present it and share it with their teammates. And so I just asked them, look, what, what, what made you interested? What, what opened your eyes that there was something different and unique about the gospel and following Christ? And they said this, not only were we studying the Bible, but we started hanging out with believers. And we realized that they were interested in our lives. And then we talked about different things. And, and we had deeper conversations than what we were having with our drinking buddies and our teammates. They just had fun with other believers. And it was a powerful evangelist, excuse me, it was a powerful apologetic. All right, so we've got to live like Jesus. We've got to invite people into the body of Christ. And finally, we've got to share Jesus Christ. We do this in two ways. First off, you've got to be able to share what Jesus has done in your life. This is your testimony. Everybody has a testimony. Simply communicate with people how Jesus has changed your life. But also, we've got to be able to study to dialogue, to discuss the person of Jesus. And look, the best way to do that is by meeting with somebody just to read and dialogue the Word of God. 
And look, this is what we do on campus. When people demonstrate some sort of spiritual interest, I simply ask them to meet with me on a regular basis to study and reinvestigate who Jesus is. And very often, you know what we do? All right, we just open to one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just pick your favorite and ask them to meet for four or five weeks and just say, every time we meet, let's just read, let's just study, let's just talk through who Jesus is and what makes him so special, all right? That's my strategy. That's what we do. But here's why it's so effective, all right? Because first off, evangelism is a process, all right? In previous generations, evangelism was just a gathering. It was just a meeting where you get thousands of people and a really passionate speaker and you would proclaim the gospel and people would decide to follow Jesus. Now, I don't want to limit God and his power. I think God can still work that way, absolutely. But in today's day and age, there are more skeptics and more people tend to be postmodern, all right, when it, when it comes to their beliefs. And so what that means is that evangelism, evangelism no longer is a one-time meeting, it's a process. Because what we're doing is we're inviting people to have a relationship with Christ. And there's a lot of parallels between a human relationship and a relationship with Jesus. So just in the same way, there are probably some married couples in the room who say, look, I was head over heels the moment I saw this woman. I experienced love at first sight. Look, love at first sight may exist, but it's the exception and it ain't the rule, all right? What did most of us experience who are married? It was a long process of dating, trying to wear this woman down, convince her, all right? All right, that I am worthy of her love. And it's the exact same thing with evangelism. This is why I recommend, all right, reading and studying the Bible, all right, over a four, five, six, seven, eight-week time period because you're giving them opportunities, in a sense, to date Jesus, to learn the character of Jesus, learn how Jesus lived, hear the words of Jesus. They're warming up to Jesus. But the second reason why this is so effective is you're exposing them to the word of God. See, if I'm just sharing my metaphors, my analogies, I'm relying on my human words. But if I can open this book, I'm using the very words of God. Hebrews 4.10 says the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It pierces to the vision of soul and spirit. This is the most powerful tool you have in your evangelism. This past fall, I was actually meeting with another football player. And I approached him and I said, Trey, I'd love to meet with you on a regular basis and start studying the life of Jesus. I said, man, Jesus is someone who means a lot to me. And I think it would be really fun if we met together and had an ongoing discussion on his life. All right? And he said, look, I'd love to do it. But here's the thing. All right? You can't change my mind. I believe Jesus existed, but there's two things I believe, and I believe deep down in my own heart. First off, it ain't wrong to get drunk. All right? You can't convince me on that. It doesn't matter what you say. I don't think it's wrong. All right? And the second one is this. He goes, look, I don't think premarital sex is wrong. He says, look, I think as long as you're committed to a girl, it's fine. I said, okay, that's fine. I said, look, just, just, just humor me here. Are you still willing to meet with me? Can we study the word of God together? And he said, yeah, I'll do that, but just don't don't try to change my mind on these things. I said, okay. And look, Trey and I met, all right, for 10 weeks straight. 
And we just studied the life of Christ. And here's what's really interesting, all right? I just met with him two weeks ago, all right? And he, and he came to me with two new convictions. He said, look, he said, not only am I not drinking, I've actually given up alcohol for the next six weeks. And he said, look, I want the next woman I sleep with to be my wife. Because slowly but surely, we saw Hebrews 4.10 at work. The word of God is living and active. It changed his heart and it changed his convictions. It wasn't my words. It wasn't my insight. It was the word of God. So that's how we bring our friends near Jesus. This is what fruitful evangelism is. It starts with a mind. It starts with a heart that says, look, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to bring my friend near Jesus. But then we have to live like Jesus. We have to bring people into the body of Christ. And we have to study the word and share about the life of Christ. So that's what we learn from the four friends. We've got two more characters. We've got Jesus Christ and we have the paralytic. What do we learn from Jesus Here's what we learn about Jesus is that he meets our greatest need. Jesus meets our greatest need. Now, so often, all right, when you're teaching, all right, on stage, preaching, I guess, in order to be a good teacher, you got to be one, you got to be, you got to be able to stay focused. Does that make sense? Because very often there's distractions, all right? In our church, you always got some sort of baby screaming, all right, because we have a new baby each and every week. All right, the occasional cell phone goes off. All right, sometimes you got somebody with a weird cough that throws you off, all right? To be a good teacher, you really got to focus, all right? And Jesus is being tested right here because while he's teaching, all right, there is somebody pounding, all right, with a hammer on the ceiling. And then dirt starts falling on his head. And you can almost picture Jesus with just wiping away clumps of mud from his forehead. But he stays focused. And the next thing Jesus knows is there is a man, all right, actually being lowered down to the point where this paralytic is eye to eye with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus more than likely looked at the paralytic, then he looked at the roof, then he looked at the paralytic, then he looked back up and he saw four heads peering over. And so Jesus makes this observation, but what he says next is pretty strange. It's a pretty crazy statement If you think about what's going on, Jesus looks at this man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. See, here's what you got to understand. In this moment, Jesus is operating like a spiritual paramedic. All right, think about what a paramedic or an EMT does. They run up, they sprint towards an accident or a disaster. And they are trained in a moment's notice, right, in the blink of an eye to make a decision. What is the most urgent What is the most dangerous, most pressing need? And they go to that. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's being a spiritual paramedic. He is addressing this man's most urgent need. See, you've got to understand the eyes of Jesus. See, in the New Testament, in the book of Corinthians, we are actually called not to regard anyone according to the flesh. That means we should view the world not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. That means even though we have a boss or a CEO who has a corner office and drives a Mercedes-Benz, when we have spiritual eyes, we recognize if they aren't right with God, they have an urgent and distressing need. That means our neighbors, even if they have the cutest family and the cutest kids and the cutest dog and they take the best vacations, if they are separated from Christ, they have an urgent need. See, here's what we learn in this story is that man's greatest need 
His most urgent and pressing need is not to walk. It's to be forgiven. We see that Jesus values the spiritual more than the physical. In a sense, Jesus is saying to this man, you think you know your problems, but you don't. Your greatest need is not your paralysis. It's your guilt. Jesus is saying to this man, look, you don't need to walk. You need grace. You need forgiveness. See, it would actually be unloving of Jesus in this moment just to heal him physically and withhold forgiveness. Because yes, this man could have walked, he could have run, he could have danced, hugged, gardened, he could have read a book, but guess what? He would have died in his sin, separated from God, and sentenced to face eternity apart from God. Do you understand what Jesus is saying right here? He's saying that a life with me is better than a life without disability. A life with me is better than a life without disability. Jesus meets this man's greatest needs. So let's look at him. Let's look at the paralytic. What do we learn from him? We learn that anybody can be forgiven through faith. That anyone can be forgiven through faith. See, this man, in a sense, is almost like an allegory. He's a metaphor for our spiritual condition apart from Jesus Christ. See, our culture, our world says that if you are separated from Christ, maybe you're just a little messed up, you're a little distracted, you're moving down the wrong path, but the Bible uses much starker and severe language. In fact, Ephesians 2.1 says this, if you are apart from Jesus Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. That means that although you may be physically alive, spiritually, you're dead. You're incapable. You don't have any natural desire for God. In a sense, you're paralyzed. You can't move towards God. You can't walk towards God. You can't even crawl towards Jesus Christ. And look, there are many in the church today who come to church, who check out Jesus because of a physical issue. And it probably isn't paralysis like this man maybe you're here in this church today because you recognize I drink too much or I work too much maybe you've just recently experienced some sort of difficulty I've been through a tough breakup or a family tragedy or maybe there's something mental going on you're dealing with anxiety or an addiction that you can't control or maybe it's just this awareness that my life is not going the way I want it to Do you understand what Jesus is saying to you? He's saying your greatest need, your most urgent need, is not physical but spiritual. You need to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. And oftentimes what God does is he will use physical issues to awaken and to expose a deep spiritual need for God. This is actually what we talked about a couple weeks ago where Andrew shared a parable about two sons And there was a younger son who went out and and engaged in really sinful living. And he had a rock-bottom moment. And God allowed pain and suffering to enter in his life. Why? Because God was seeking in the most loving way possible to awaken within him a need for Jesus Christ. So how is this man saved? How is this man forgiven? How is this man spiritually healed? Is it by his efforts? Is it by his performance and his ability to walk? 
No. This man can't walk, run, or crawl. It says in the passage that Jesus saw his faith. This man, although he couldn't move, he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And the moment he does, we see two immediate changes. First off, his status changes. He has a new family. Because Jesus looks at him, and what does he call this man? He says, you are my son. You are my son. This man is adopted. This is what we talked about two weeks ago. The moment he places his faith in Jesus Christ, he enters, he joins the family of God. So not only does his status change, but his life changes. Because Jesus forgives his sins, but he also heals him spiritually. Excuse me, heals him physically. Jesus says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This man experiences real, discernible life change. This is the bottom line. When we enter the family of God, when we are adopted into Christ's family, our life begins to change. So who do you identify with? Do you identify more with the paralytic or more with the friend? You might say, just like this paralytic, my life is tough. I'm facing a real challenge right now. I just want my life to change. Well, what would Jesus say to you? He would say, no, you have a greater need. You have a more urgent issue, and that is to be forgiven. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And here's what he wants to say to you, is that you have sinned against him. You have sinned against Jesus himself, and he wants to. He is eager. He desires to forgive you. Just like this paralytic, Jesus is eye to eye with you. Jesus is staring at you. And his look is not full of anger and disgust at your past or the things you've done. His gaze is filled with empathy and compassion and a longing, a desire to forgive you. So if you identify with the paralytic, if you are facing a real physical challenge, here's my question for you. Who has carried you into this church today? More than likely, you have good friends. You have faithful friends who have brought you near Jesus. And here's what they want for your life, for you to confess your sin. In a sense, confess your spiritual paralysis and place your faith in Jesus Christ. There's a great old hymn, I think it's called Come Ye Sinners, but it says this, all the fitness that Jesus requires is to share your need for him. That's it, that's what Jesus wants. He just wants you to confess your sin. Recognize that I can't walk, I can't crawl, I can't step near Jesus. Jesus, will you change me? Will you give me the ability to walk with you? Only Jesus can change you. Only Jesus can heal you. Only Christ can bring forgiveness. But for most of you in the room, you more identify with the friends. You say, look, I am a follower of Jesus. And look, regardless of your profession, regardless of your occupation, you might be a teacher, a stay-at-home mom, a businessman, do you see what this story is communicating to you? Is that you are in the business of construction. More specifically, you're in the business of spiritual demolition. Is that God has given you a hard hat and a hammer. And here's your responsibility. You got to remove roofs. You got to break barriers. You got to sacrifice. You got to risk. You got to be willing to do whatever it takes to bring your friends, your coworkers, 
your classmates near Jesus. But when we get honest with ourselves, we don't have track records full of sacrifice and risk, do we? And I'm speaking for myself as well. I'm very willing, all right, to be bold and aggressive, sharing the gospel with an 18-year-old, but when I evaluate my life and whether or not I take risk with people who are older than me or people who are my peers, I don't make a lot of sacrifices. I don't do whatever it takes. Very often, I have failed to be a good friend. Very often, I care more about my comfort, my reputation, more than my friends. So look, if you've failed to be a good friend, here's what I would remind you. What a friend we have in Jesus. Consider this. What did it cost Jesus to meet our greatest need? What did it cost Jesus to forgive our sins? Why was Jesus able to look at a man that he'd never met and say, son, your sins are forgiven? See, here's what we can't forget, is that God can't just sweep sin under the rug. Jesus can't just forgive sins with the snap of a finger. God is a just and holy and righteous God, and he must punish sin. In other words, when Jesus looked at this man with love and compassion and said, I forgive you of your sins, you know what else he was saying? He's saying to this man, I will die for you. I will take your punishment. I will go to the cross in your place. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the friend we need. Our sin was a roof. Our sin was a barrier that kept us from God. And Jesus didn't just swing a hammer. He didn't just roll up his sleeves. He didn't just get a little dirty. He risked and sacrificed his life to give us an opening to God. In fact, Ephesians 1.7 says this, is that through his blood, we have forgiveness of sins. So why should we be good friends? Why should we be risky, sacrificing friends? Why should we be committed to do whatever it takes to bring our friends near Jesus? Because Jesus was a good friend. Jesus was the best friend that we needed. And he did whatever it took to meet our greatest need, to bring us near God. Let me pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that you're a good friend, that you were willing to do whatever it takes on our behalf. I thank you that you are willing to meet our greatest need. I thank you that through you, even though we were paralyzed, we couldn't walk, move, and crawl in your direction, you came to us. And you sacrificed everything on our behalf to bring us near God. God, I pray that we would be good friends. That when it comes to relating to our coworkers, our neighbors, our classmates, that we would be so committed to bring others near Jesus. God, I pray for the men and women in this room who have real physical needs. God, that they would see they have a deeper and greater spiritual need, and that is to be made right with you. Would would they place their trust and their faith in you and would you forgive them of their sins? God, may this be a church that meets the needs, the spiritual needs of this city. Amen.